Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, sorry, you can turn to John chapter 2. I do want to thank you all. Um, last week, uh, a lot of our staff was in Greece. We hosted a, a retreat for our long-term missionaries. So these are families that are living overseas. We have seven families who are overseas. Five of them were able to come to this retreat, and it was, uh, it was great. I don't know that it could have gone better, and I don't think I've ever said that about anything. It really, it was, it was great. It was great for them. It's little things. Worship in their own language, someone they trusted to watch their kids so they could go on a date. For many of them, it's been a long time since they've been able to do that. Have somebody pray for them versus them constantly be being the ones who are giving and praying for others. It was just, it was great. Our Desire going in was it would be physical and spiritual rest for them, and uh, all of them affirmed that that was the case. We can't show any pictures. Some of them are in uh, countries where there's be security concerns, but we did actually go, and they came with us. Uh, and again, they just wanted to extend their thanks to y'all, uh, particularly those of you who gave during the Christmas Eve offering. That's how we funded the trip, and those of you who've been praying since then for. Uh, the retreat it was a long time coming, and it, it just went really well. And so I'm thankful for that, and thank you all uh, for that as well. Okay, last week, uh, Michael Mosley looked at uh, the first half of John chapter 2, Jesus turning water into wine, and John the writer says that that's a sign. That's a huge word in the Gospel of John, sign. A sign is a miracle that reveals something about Jesus' identity. John very clearly says in Chapter 20, the purpose of him writing this book, the reason he wrote this gospel, was so that we would believe Jesus is the Messiah, and by believing in Jesus, we'd have life in his name. And so he refers to miracles as signs because he uses them in a way to say this is who Jesus is. The event itself is not as significant as what it tells us about Jesus' identity. And all of that moves towards this idea that John has of, I want you all to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So what does Jesus turning water into wine have to do with his identity? What does that show us about who he is? There's some Old Testament imagery around weddings and around uh, wedding banquets, what we would call a reception. That's not at all what would be in the Jewish mind. Our reception's a couple hours with finger food and maybe a DJ. Their reception is seven days long and is a massive celebration, massive celebration. You invited as many people as you could. Uh, to come. And so Jesus at a wedding, turning water into wine, that would remind a, a Jewish mind of promises that God made in the Old Testament when he was going to make all things new. The idea, the image of him marrying Israel or the idea of when he makes all things new, when the Messiah comes, that he would uh, there would be new wine, there would be an abundant feast like there was at a wedding reception. So all that speaks to Jesus as a restorer as the one who's coming to make all things new. So Jesus turning water into wine, it's a miracle. It's the first sign, and it points to him as the Messiah, as the one who's going to make all things new, as the one who's going to restore all things. Today we're going to look at the second half of John chapter 2, a story that may be familiar to you. It's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in John, Jesus cleansing the temple. But in John, it's in a different place. Matthew, Mark, and Luke place the cleansing of the temple at the very end of Jesus' ministry, last week of his life. It appears to be the event, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, the thing that catalyzed the religious leaders to decide, hey, we're going to arrest him and kill him now. 
uh, versus allowing him to continue in ministry. John moves this event all the way to the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and that causes heartburn for some people because it's not in the same place. And it's okay. You can say there's two. There's a cleansing at the beginning, and three years later there's a cleansing at the end, and John talks about the one at the beginning, and Matthew and Mark and Luke talk about the one at the end. You can do that. I I wouldn't, but you could. What I would choose to say is that the cleansing of the temple happened at the end of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it in the right place. And John has moved it because he's not a newspaper reporter. He didn't say, I set out to give a chronological account of Jesus' life and ministry. He said... I've collected the stories that I've collected in order that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. There's a theological reason for him moving it, and it's okay. It doesn't at all undermine the truth of the gospel or the truth of the New Testament or the fact that you can base your life on what's revealed here at all. He's not contradicting himself, and he's not contradicting Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He has a different purpose than they do. And his purpose is best served by moving this story to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So the question for us is why? What does this cleansing reveal to us about Jesus' identity? If everything that John's writing is to let us see who Jesus is, what does his moving the story to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry say about Jesus' identity? So starting in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So Jesus made a whip out of cords, and he drove all of the people uh, from the temple courts, and he also drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market or into a house of business. His disciples remembered that it's written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to Jesus, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days? But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So just to remind you of what's going on, so uh, the Gentiles, non-Jews, could only go to this bottom left corner, which is blown up here. That's the only place a Gentile could go on the whole planet. That's the only place a Gentile could go to worship the God of Israel. That was it. And the religious leaders had decided to, uh, to in that place, that court of the Gentiles, to set up a market. And the market was providing necessary services. So to be clear, what they were doing was necessary for travelers to be able to worship appropriately. Pentecost was one of, or excuse me, Passover was one of the three major festivals that uh, Jews would travel into Jerusalem to celebrate. And they had to sacrifice animals. That was part of the deal. And they would sacrifice doves, or they would sacrifice oxen, or they would sacrifice sheep. It all depended on how much money they made and what sacrifice they were, um, which particular sacrifice they were offering. And the sacrificial animals had to be basically perfect. And so you can imagine if you're traveling with an animal, it may get injured, it may get killed, and then you're out of luck. So what guys would do is they'd just bring money, and they would buy an animal that was acceptable when they got to Jerusalem. And so the temple authorities set up a place where you could do that. You could come and buy a sacrificial animal, which you needed if you wanted to worship appropriately. Every Jewish male had to pay a tax at the temple. It was a half-shekel tax that went to the upkeep of the temple. But it had to be in local money. You couldn't bring euros or pesos or yen. It had to be dollars. And so 
these guys, they set up places, exchanges, where you could bring your euros and get dollars for it. Necessary. Jesus' issue was not with the activity. His issue was where the activity took place. Again, this is the only area on the planet that a Gentile can go to be in the presence of God. And on, in that space and on that place, the religious leaders have set up a market, a house of business, and Jesus is ticked. And so he makes a whip when he gets there and he starts running everybody off of this court of the Gentiles. He's turning over tables. He's driving out animals. He's driving off the people who are selling the animals and exchanging the money. And he says, y'all are turning my father's house into a house of business. And then we have this aside from John. He's editorializing, kind of steps back and says, the disciples remembered this verse from Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. They don't remember in the moment. I don't think as Jesus is physically turning over tables and driving out animals that they're saying, oh yeah, I remember this verse and it provides context to what Jesus is doing. I don't think so at all. They remember after the fact, like years after the fact. They remember looking back through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection. When you see the word remember in John, that's almost always the idea behind it. Is he's saying after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples understood some of what he did. They didn't understand it in the moment. In the moment, I'm betting they were kind of distancing themselves from him and kind of saying, we don't, we don't really know that guy and we're not sure why he's doing whatever it is that, they're, that he's doing. I don't think they had a clue what, why he was acting that way. But they did later when they fully understood who he was after the resurrection. And so the, the temple leaders, they go up to him after he's done all this and they're like, who do you, who do you think you are? You have to show us something to demonstrate that you actually have the authority to do what you just did. Show us a sign to prove to us that what you did was legitimate. Again, you can imagine if I, you invited me over to your house and I came and I started moving all the furniture around in your house, you would probably say, what are you doing? This is my house. I like where everything is. And that's what the temple leaders are like. This is our house. We signed off on all of this. This work is necessary, or this, these operations are necessary. So why are you coming and driving everything out? And Jesus' answer is really a non-answer. Tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They're standing in the temple, so when he says tear down this temple, they're looking around at the walls. They're not thinking about his body. There's no way to make that leap at this point in time. They think he's talking about the temple because that's where they're standing. And he says, tear it down, I'll build it again in three days. Which is basically saying, I'm not giving you a sign. Nobody's tearing down the temple. It's taken 46 years, it's still not done. It's going to take 30 more years to finish it. Nobody's tearing the thing down so Jesus can prove a point. He's saying no without saying no. I'm not giving you a sign. And then we get John stepping back again, editorializing, and says, the disciples remembered, it's the exact same word, the NIV says recalled. The disciples remembered after the resurrection, they remembered what Jesus said and then they put it together. Oh, he was talking about his body. They did destroy his body. And three days later, he was raised to life. Now we understand what he meant. So you have this interesting exchange. Jesus comes in, turns over tables. There were other places actually where people could buy and sell. 
the priests just want to cut. That's why Jesus was so angry. There were four other markets that people could go to buy animals and change money, but this was the only place Gentiles could go and worship. And he says, zeal for my... And the disciples say, interpreting the event later, zeal for my Father's house has consumed me. And Jesus expresses that zeal by turning over these tables. He's cleansing the temple. He's trying to restore it to its original purpose and function, a place where people can meet God. And the religious leaders should have known better. They should have known that's what the temple was existed for. And yet they were corrupting that and perverting that by allowing all of this buying and selling to happen. You can imagine we just stepped out of the time of worship. If while we were worshiping, think about like at a, at a Braves game or a, a football game, the guy who's walking around hollering for peanuts and Coke. If that guy's walking through here while we're worshiping, it's probably not going to help you a lot. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like that you're not helping. You're not helping any of these guys connect with the Lord, which is the purpose of this place. You want a sign, and I'm not giving you one. He actually appeals only to his relational authority. My father's house, first time Jesus has called God his father in the Gospel of John. My father's house should be this house of worship. What he's saying is, I know what my father wants, and this isn't it. So I'm going to move us in the direction of what my father wants. You don't get a sign. My authority is rooted in my relationship with him. What does this tell us about Jesus' identity? That we get from those editorial comments at the end, speaking about his body. Jesus is going to be a Messiah who dies. That doesn't fit conventional wisdom. Messiah as a king, yes. Messiah as a warrior, yes. Messiah as a restorer, yes. Messiah as a, one who, as a, dying, a dying Messiah, no. That doesn't fit the profile. And John wants us to know from the very beginning, everything that Jesus is doing is leading towards his death. You don't necessarily see that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's a unique perspective John has, where from the very beginning, Jesus seems to be aware that he is going to die and that all of his ministry is moving towards his death and culminating in his death. John wants us to know from the very beginning, this is the kind of Messiah that you're following. This is the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. He's one who dies for his people. Nobody understands it at the time. Nobody gets, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Nobody understands it. The disciples don't. The religious leaders certainly don't. But we do. As people who are on this side of the resurrection, when we hear those words, we're able to interpret it appropriately. Jesus is referring to his body. John gives us the clue to that. He is a dying Messiah, who we also know was raised to life again. Verse 23. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing, and they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about humanity or about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is weird to me. So Jesus is performing signs, so those are miracles, and people are seeing those miracles, and they're, putting their, they're believing in him, which seems like what we want. But then John says, well, Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them, or literally Jesus doesn't believe in them. They believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them. They believe in Jesus. Jesus does not believe their belief in him. Why? Because he knows what's in people, and he doesn't even tell. Like, what is it? What is it in people? And we don't really get a lot of information or insight into that. I want to step back and I want to look at all of chapter 2 to see if we can understand that last section as well. The use of signs throughout chapter 2, three times, 
we see the word signs. What Jesus did here in Cana, turning water to wine, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Then we just saw after the cleansing of the temple, the Jews respond to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority? He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days, which is saying I'm not going to give you a sign other than my resurrection. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but he did not believe their belief in him, for he knew all people. So, remember, signs are a miracle or event that points to something about Jesus' identity, and, and there's not a lot we can do about signs. Those are, that's God's province. He decides on signs. If you like the word miracles, you can use that. Blessings, you can use that. Whatever in your mind helps you think about God working actively in the lives of people. That, that, and that's his thing. That's not ours. He decides and he determines. What we can be responsible for is our own heart. And I think the way these signs connect with people all has to do with the heart posture and condition of the people to whom the signs are being presented. That's kind of a wordy way of saying their heart matters. Their understanding of the sign is filtered through their own, the condition of their heart. And that is something that we can and are responsible for. We can be responsible for that. We are responsible for that, the cultivation of our own hearts. And so as we're looking at the different ways signs are used in John 2, what I want you thinking about is less signs and miracles and more what is the condition of my heart on August 26th before the Lord? Which one of these categories would I say is most descriptive of me right now? And let the signs, the miracles thing, that becomes secondary. That's up to the Lord. What's primary for us is the condition of our heart. So there's three ways that we see signs being used in John 2. The first is signs as proof. That's the religious leaders. What they're saying to Jesus is they're slamming their hand on the table and they're stomping their foot and they're saying, prove it. What gives you the right? Who do you think you are? And what Jesus responds is, I'm not telling. They say, give us a sign. And he says, no, the only sign you're going to get is my resurrection. And they don't even understand what he's talking about in that moment. They don't have a clue. Only retrospectively will the religious leaders get it. Their hearts are hard. If you read in Matthew 13, there's a parable, the parable of the sower. And in that parable, there's four types of soil that are described. And those four types of soil describe the possible conditions of your heart. Your heart at any point in time is one of these four things. It's either hard or it's shallow or it's crowded or it's good. Your heart is one of those four things. It's a hard ground like a path. It's shallow, it's got rocks in it, it's crowded, there's weeds, or it's good. It's receptive to the Lord. Your heart at any point in time is one of those four things. And so that's your filter for this morning, your grid as you're thinking about your own heart. The heart of the religious leaders is hard. They're the path. They're resistant to Jesus. They're hostile to him. Throughout the Gospels, when people are hostile to Jesus, he does not play with them. He doesn't engage. They say, give us a sign, and he says, no. An evil and wicked generation asks for a sign. The only one you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. He spent three days in the belly of a fish, and I'm going to spend three days in the earth. That's the only sign you get. The only sign you're going to get is my resurrection because you're not interested. You're not asking for a sign from a posture of openness. 
You're not saying, Jesus, we don't understand why you dumped over the tables and ran off the animals. We thought we were doing a good thing. We really don't get it. There was no humility in them. There was aggression and hostility and hard-heartedness. Jesus doesn't perform magic tricks for people. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't try to validate who he is or what he's doing. He says, You're, I'm, not, I'm not engaging on that level. So for us, the idea of your heart becoming hard is super dangerous. Very dangerous. The writer of Hebrews, don't let your heart become hardened. So you can think of this for someone who's never begun to follow Jesus or even people who are following Jesus. Our hearts can still become hard. Maybe not completely, but in different areas. And you've probably experienced this. Sinful patterns of behavior. You're convicted, but you don't want to quit because you enjoy what you're doing. And so you ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. God, you know there's someone you need to forgive, but you don't like them. And so you're not willing to forgive them. They haven't apologized. They don't deserve it yet. You're being resistant to the Lord. You're hardening your heart to something that he's saying to you. And the danger in hardening your heart is at some point God says, okay, if that's what we're doing, then that's what we're doing. If you're going to harden your heart, then I'm going to cooperate with you and harden it as well. He does that to Pharaoh. You can go back and read that in Exodus. Five times Pharaoh hardens his own heart. The sixth time God hardens Pharaoh's heart. You don't want to be in that spot. What God is doing, he's not kind of washing his hands and saying, I don't care about you. He's not shaking the dust off his feet and saying, I'm walking away from you. He's not saying kind of good riddance. He's not doing any of that. What he's saying is, if you're not going to respond to me, to the invitation that I'm giving you, if you're not going to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you're not going to respond to what I'm revealed to you in the word, then I'm going to give you over to your own sin and you can sit in that for a while. And it's terrible. You can just stew in your own filth of your you can reap the consequences of these sinful choices again not because god takes any delight in seeing people suffer but because if we're hardening our hearts and we're being unresponsive to him he says well maybe this will be the thing maybe you will be broken as you experience the full weight of of your sin. There's some scripture up on the screen from Romans 1. We don't have time to go through it, but you can see that if then, the cause and effect, people rejecting God and then God saying, okay, here are the consequences. I'm going to give you over the consequences of your sin, hopefully, so that you'll wake up one day, so that you'll be broken. It's a parable of the prodigal son. Take the money, go waste it in a foreign land. When you're slopping pigs, maybe at some point you realize it's better at home. And you'll be broken enough to come home. It's not what God desires for us. He doesn't desire any of us to experience the consequences of our sin. But if we're hardening our hearts, he's got no choice at that point. He says, okay. Hard ground has to be broken. Being broken is not fun. You've experienced that. If you've hardened your heart in a particular area, the Lord very well may allow you to reap the consequences of those choices. And those consequences will devastate you. But the point is not for you to be devastated. It's for you to repent. And so if you were honest this morning and say, I'm hardening my heart, either in total before the Lord or in this particular area of my life, I would beg you, beg you, say to the Lord, 
My heart is hard in this area. I'm not interested in obeying you at all. But I'm willing. I'm willing to be willing. I'm willing to obey. I, I don't want to. But I'm, I'm opening up my heart as much as I can. And he will take advantage of that. Just that little bit of humility. That little bit of acknowledgement that says, I'm willing to be willing. He'll take advantage of that. If you harden your heart, you will reap the consequences of your sin. And it will be devastating. And it's not because God doesn't like you. It's because he loves you and his desire is for you to repent and be reconciled to him. The second one, signs as basis for belief. Common where we live, I think. There's actually a whole school of thought on evangelism that says if, you, if someone's not a believer, you ask what their greatest felt need is and then you pray for God to meet that felt need. And when he does and that opens the door for somebody to come into a relationship with Jesus, it's great. It's wonderful. It just can't stop there. These are the crowds. They see Jesus performing these miracles and they believe in him because of the miracles, but Jesus doesn't trust, entrust himself to them. He doesn't believe in their belief. Why? Because their belief is based on miracles. And that's not a basis. That's not enough. He says, I know what's in human hearts. What's in human hearts? We're fickle. We go chasing after every shiny thing. Every newest and latest and greatest. And Jesus knows that. And if the only reason we're following is because he performed a miracle, that's not enough. Both Jesus and Paul say, those who stand firm to the end will be saved. And those whose faith is based on signs or wonders or miracles, they're not going to stand firm. That's not enough. That's not enough when you get disappointed. It's not enough when somebody dies. It's not enough when you have to live with a chronic illness. It's not enough. Your roots aren't deep enough. Your foundation isn't strong enough. And so what Jesus says is he's not going to entrust himself to people who are only believing in him because he worked a wonder. In John 6, we'll see this. There's crowds and they come chasing after Jesus. And he says, you're not coming because you're interested in me. You're coming because you're hungry. And last night I fed you. Literally, I fed you a meal and now it's breakfast time and you're coming back because you want more to eat. That's not enough. Those roots aren't deep enough. Again, parable of the sower. This is the shallow ground or the rocky ground. The roots can't, of the plant can't go deep. There's an initial excitement and an initial joy. But when trouble comes or persecution comes, those people fade away. And again, Jesus and Paul both say the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved, not ones who receive the gospel with joy initially and then bail at some point along the way. And so what Jesus is saying is that that's not enough. And, and what I would say to us is it's not enough. Jesus is a healer. Jesus is a restorer. Jesus is a provider. Jesus is a shepherd. Jesus is a teacher. God is not stingy with the good things that he desires to give to us. But don't allow those good things to become the basis of your relationship with him because they're not enough. Don't allow those good things to become the reason why you're following. Because at some point, if those good things don't come in the way that you want, in the time in which you want, or they just don't come at all, you're going to bail. You're not going to stand firm to the end. Your roots will not be deep enough. C.S. Lewis, this is a great quote from Screwtape Letters. Be not deceived, Wormwood. That's a devil in his book. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human 
no longer desiring but still intending to do God's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished, asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. There's a depth of maturity there that you see in that quote. It's saying, I don't feel God. I don't hear God. I don't see God. But I'm going to continue to obey God. And that's God's desire for all of us. His desire for us is that we follow him because he, we follow Jesus because he's the son of God. We follow Jesus because he's the Messiah. We follow Jesus because he's the king of the universe. We don't follow Jesus because of the things that he does for us. We follow him because of who he is. We're more than happy to receive the good things that he wants to give to us, but that's not the basis of our belief in him. And that's not the reason that we're following him. Does that make sense? Don't allow the blessings, the good things, the signs, the miracles, whatever words you want to use to become the basis for your faith because at some point God will pull those things out to see if you're going to stick. And again, he's not doing it to toy with you and he's not doing it to, to make you miserable. What he's doing it for is to mature you and to mature me. People talk about dark nights of the soul or seasons of dry seasons or desert seasons where God seems to withdraw. And oftentimes he will to see if you'll keep coming. Will you keep coming once he has he's withdrawn the tangible sense of his presence in your life? Will you keep following or do you go looking after something else? Do you go chasing after some other God? Signs are Great, but they can't be the basis for your faith. Your roots won't go deep enough. Last thing. This is what we want. Signs is confirmation. These are the disciples, the water to wine. They're already in a posture of, of faith towards the Lord. These are some things from John chapter 1 that the disciples say about Jesus. So this is all before he turns water into wine. Andrew says we found the Messiah. Philip says we found the one Moses wrote about. Nathaniel says, Jesus, you're the Son of God. They don't fully understand what they're saying, but they, they're saying something. There's some at least kernel of belief in them. And when Jesus turns water into wine, it confirms what they were already thinking and what they were already believing. They'd already made a decision to follow Jesus. They'd already said, we're hitching ourselves to, to you. We're... we're following you. You're our teacher. We want to learn to live life like you do. They'd already said that. And so when he turns water into wine, for them, it's confirming he really is the Son of God. He really is the Messiah. Again, they don't fully understand even those statements. After he turns water into wine, they're still going to desert him at the crucifixion. We know that. But there's, there's, it's not that those that miracle is not the basis for their faith. That miracle is not them demanding God, show, Jesus, show us who you are. It confirms something that they've already begun to believe. And that's what we want to be. That's the posture we want to take. That's what, we want that to be our approach. Whether, you, again, blessings, miracles, signs, wonders, whatever you want to call those things. God's activity in your life, and he is not stingy with it. He desires, he's a good father, and he desires to give good gifts to each of his children. And we want to expect him to do that. We want to ask him to do that. And we want to receive those things graciously and gratefully from him. We want those things, those blessings, to confirm what we already believe. We don't want those things to be the basis 
of our belief. And we certainly don't want to sit back in unbelief and stomp our foot and slam down our hand and say, prove that you're worthy of my life. He doesn't do that. Signs are not proof. And signs are not the basis or the foundation for our faith. These signs, these blessings confirm who Jesus revealed himself to be. What he would say to all of us, you've already got the greatest sign. It's the resurrection. That's what he said to the religious leaders. Our faith is based on the resurrection of Jesus. It's not based on the fact that you were healed or that God spoke to you or that God provided for you. Your faith is based on the resurrection. And my faith is based on the resurrection. And that's enough. If God never does anything else, that is proof enough that Jesus is worthy of our lives. That he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the universe. Because he's gracious, he does so much more than that, but it's gravy. There's tons of gravy, but it's gravy. And so for you this morning, as you think about your own heart, which posture would you say is most indicative of where you are this morning? You know the right answer. I don't want you to give me the right answer. I want you to give the honest answer. Would you say this morning that you're resistant to the Lord, either in total or in part? Would you say my heart is, is hardened towards God? I'm hostile towards Him. If any, I'm, I'm resisting what He would say, either in terms of yielding my life to Him overall or yielding in this particular area of my life, which I know He's put His finger on. I don't want to quit. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to move. Whatever that would be. Would you say your heart is shallow? That's a hard one to admit. There's rocks in your heart. You have some initial, there was initial joy and excitement around following Jesus, but really your roots aren't that deep. You're not cultivating relationship. And if in your most honest moment you would say, if things got tough, I, I don't know if I'd make it. I don't know if I'd stand firm to the end. I don't know if my faith is strong enough. The, another type of soil, it's not mentioned here necessarily in John 2, but it's so applicable to applicable for where we live in an affluent society is, is soil that's weedy, soil that's crowded. Again, there's a response to the gospel and, and there's some initial growth, but there's so many things. The desires of this life, worries of this world, deceitfulness of wealth and that choke out the gospel. And I think of where we live and all of the things that compete for time and money and energy and attention. So many voices yelling. Sometimes it can be hard to hear the voice of God. And you may say, if I'm honest, the beginning of this school year, for many of you, you run on a school calendar and you would say, that's me. That's where I'm living. My heart is crowded with things that may be good, but my heart is crowded. I can't reach that all of these other things, as good as they may be, are choking out the gospel of my own heart. Or would you, with all honesty and integrity, say, no, I feel like I'm responsive to the Lord. I'm in a good spot right now. My heart's soft. I'm hearing his voice and I'm obeying what he's saying. Which one of those four would you say is most reflective of you? Don't, don't worry about the signs. How you receive those things is based on the condition of your heart. You can't do anything about that. That's all the Lord. He decides and he determines how he's going to act in our life. What we can do is cultivate a heart that receives those things rightly. Not stomping our foot saying, God, prove it. Not basing our faith on the good things that he's done for us. But allowing those good things to be what they are, a blessing 
a confirmation of what we've already decided in our heart is true. That he's a good father. That he's a risen savior. That he's a spirit living within us. Let's take a minute and pray. Pick your one. In your own heart, you're not going to have to raise your hand. Just in your own heart, you decide which of those four soils is most true of you this morning. And then in your own words, I would encourage you to lay that heart condition before the Lord. You don't have to fix it. You've got to invite him in and he'll do it. You'll have to cooperate, but he'll give you grace for that. God, my heart's hard. I don't believe any of this stuff. My heart's hard. I'm not, I'm not willing to obey in this area. I'm willing to be willing. I'm willing to be convinced. Would you, God, hear that willingness to be willing, that willingness to be convinced as an invitation for you to begin to work? And he will. You can pray that in your own words. God, I got some rocks in my heart. My roots aren't deep. My foundation's shaky. not necessarily looking forward to going through anything difficult, not wanting to enter into a desert season of my life, but I want my roots to go deep. So whatever that looks like, I give you permission. Do that. Do that in my life. God, there are lots of weeds, lots of people and circumstances and activities that are competing for my time and my money and my energy and my attention. I like all of them, if I'm honest. But I recognize that they're drowning out your still small voice in my life. And so I give my heart to you, I give my life to you, and I pray. Put your finger on whatever needs to be pulled out. God, I'm thankful that my heart right now in this, on this day, in this moment, is soft to you. It is receptive, and I pray that that would continue. And God, my prayer for the men and women, the students in this room, is that each one of us would be that good soil in which the gospel would take root and would produce an exponential harvest 30 and 60 and 100 times what was sown. We're thankful, God, that you're a good father, that you desire to give good gifts to each one of us, and we want to receive those gifts in the spirit in which you give them. We want to recognize those gifts as confirmation of who you are. as blessings that you give us because you're gracious and you're kind and you're merciful. We want to enjoy the good things that you give to us, but not depend upon them. We want to say with confidence and conviction our faith in Jesus, our following of him, is based on the resurrection. It's not based on anything that you would or wouldn't give to us right now. So, God, would you strengthen the faith of each one of us? Would our roots grow deep? Would we be ones who stand firm until the end and so are saved? In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jeremy mentioned it's small group Sunday. We'll give, we're going to cut out here in a second.
my encouragement, my small group plug, we want you to go out the door, make a left, go up two stores and make another left, go up and check out those groups. Here's what I would say. Everything's voluntary. And so if you don't want to be in a group, we're not going to make you. We're not going to guilt you. We're not going to do any of that. This is what I would say. If you're not a part of a Stonebridge group, then your connection to the church will be lessened. And you may, that may be okay. You may be fine coming on Sundays and that being the level of your involvement. You may have some other places where uh, you're encouraged and where you're strengthened and where you're comforted. And, and that's wonderful if that's the case. But just know that the primary point of connection with the church will be a small group. Uh, a small group is a primary way you're going to be taken care of. We have 14 people on our staff, and that includes interns and our janitor. We have 14 total, and there's 1,000 people who go to our church. We, we can't. The staff is not going to be able to take care of you when you're hurting. It's, it's, there's just not enough of us. And so the, a primary place of care would be a small group, and you may already have those relationships, and that's wonderful as well. And the small group is also a place... I would say a primary place for growth. It's a place where you can receive from other people and where you can give what you have to other people. So my encouragement would be if you feel like Stonebridge is the place for you, that you would check out those small groups. If you want, some people say, hey, I kind of want to form my own. I would encourage you to talk to Jeremy about that. Just don't, don't go rogue and kind of pull people. We just don't know. We're, he won't try to control you, and he's not going to dictate what you do. We just want to know what people are doing, and make sure everybody is plugging in and is in a place where they can be cared for and where they can be discipled. If you're newish to the church, and you can define that, I would say Foundations is the best place for you to start. It's a four-week class that Jeremy leads to help you get to know the church a little bit better. It'll maybe help you decide if you actually like us enough to form, uh, to stick with the group. So if you're newish, I would say Foundations is the best thing. But for all of you, our desire is for you to be in life-giving relationship. Small groups is our offering. It's our way of saying this is, this is what we're offering in terms of saying connect with one another in these life-giving ways. Again, you may have relationships outside of Stonebridge that do that for you, and we bless you in that, and we don't want you to feel guilty or that you're a bad church member because you're not part of a Stonebridge group. So is that clear? We want you to do it. It's voluntary, but I think it will be. It's, it is... Uh, beneficial for everyone in terms of their spiritual growth. So you guys are free to go. You've got a couple of minutes to go look at those groups, and then you can pick up your kids. See you all next week.